Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. And we're this is episode, I can't remember, episode 80-something of the podcast. So uh, we're not a very new podcast anymore. But uh, for those of you just tuning in for the first time, basically uh, what we try to do here on the podcast uh, is uh, bring in an author uh, of a book that's been newly published or recently published something um, – some, uh, on a topic that uh, we think you guys out there would like to hear a discussion about, and then hopefully uh, at the end of the podcast, or you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you'd go ahead and uh, give the book a purchase and give it a read for yourself. So uh, if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And uh, my guest today is Dr. William B. Allen, and Dr. Allen is a resident scholar and the former chief operating officer of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education in Washington, D.C. He is also emeritus professor of political philosophy in the, in the Department of Political Science and emeritus dean of James Madison College at Michigan State University. He served previously on the United States National Council for the Humanities and is chairman and member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He has also been a Kellogg National Fellow, received the International Prix Montesquieu, and was the 2014 Salvatore Award a winner. He is the author of, among many others, Rethinking Uncle Tom, The Political Philosophy of H.B. Stowe, uh, George Washington, America's First Progressive, and Let the Advice Be Good, A Defense of Madison's Democratic Nationalism. And uh, lastly, he is the editor and co-author of The State of Black America, Progress, Pitfalls, and the Promise of the Republic, which was published back in May by Encounter Books and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Allen, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, it's I appreciate you. It's a pleasure that. to join you, and thank you for, much for inviting me. Oh, no problem. All right, so uh, before we get to the book, why don't you uh, tell everybody about the Center for Urban Renewal and Education and the important work uh, that's being done there? Well, the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, which we call CURE, was founded in 1995 by Stark Parker. And as you might uh, recall or be aware of, that was the era of welfare reform. Stark Parker was a woman who had lifted herself up from welfare and poverty into independence and self-respect. And in the process, gained a commitment, an intense commitment, spread that gospel. And she started first by participating and helped to lead the effort to reform welfare during the Clinton administration, created cure in that context, and it's been going ever since. All right, great. So uh, the book, The State of Black America, what um, uh, what was the genesis of it? What made you want to put this book together? Well, the, the genesis, of course, is rather straightforward. At Cure, we're interested to change the policies that are having such a devastating effect in our distressed zip codes. But but there's a backstory to this. Uh, Fourteen years ago, I cre- contributed an essay to a book my wife published, which was called Ending Racial Preferences, Telling the Michigan Story. And in, in my contribution to that, I explained the disaster that loomed ahead from pushing diversity policies to an extreme. So you might say the origin for the present book, The State of Black America, is I'm now showing that the disaster has happened, that in that indeed we did go as far wrong as I foresaw that we would go if we continued on that path. And, and there, that is the reason for that is simple. 
uh, we have constructed a narrative of division in the country, separating people one from another ethnically on the basis of gender, on the basis of race, and so many other things. We've just driven it to insanity. And we've created this poisonous narrative of race with the capital R that pretty much obstructs any real conversation going on in the country. And this book was meant to address that problem and to in, put in place a conversation from which we could grow into a greater sense of community across lines of different background and development and also gain a renewed respect for the American heritage. Gotcha. And so uh, the chapter... The uh, individuals who uh, wrote the chapters in the book, you uh, wrote or co-wrote a couple chapters yourself. But, but how did you go about yeah. picking? How did you go about picking who to invite to uh, to provide a chapter? How did how did that process work? Oh, that's a good question. I call it standard academic practice. <laughs> we first set forward our goal, our mission, what we were looking for. And then we published very widely a call for proposals. We published it among practitioners and experts in the academic world and in the public service world and all think tanks, all of them. And from the proposals that were submitted to us, I selected those that fit best into the paradigms that we were working with. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we came up with Glenn Lowry and Ian Rowe and Edward Erler and Robert Bland and Prentice Hall and Daphne Cooper, and of course, Star Parker is a contributor, as I am. So, so we pulled it together by first scouring the landscape and selecting the best elements from among it. Gotcha. All right. So uh, now to the, or the uh, contents of the book itself. It's kind of hard or difficult to... Uh, sort of figure out questions to ask uh, someone who just <laughs> edited a book instead of author. I mean, I know you did a couple uh, chapters, so I, I sort of concentrated on that. But um, but just, I guess in general, what why is the charge that uh, that black America is this uh, victim of this unyielding systemic racial oppression uh, false? Why is, why is that false? Why is the idea that that uh, black Americans make up a, a, a permanent underclass false? Yeah, that, 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 that's a wonderful question and actually it goes to the heart and it cuts through all the contributions to the book. Uh, because what it does is to underscore the reality that we have embraced a narrative that's inconsistent with our history. And the book is setting forth the history to show that the narrative is false. But more importantly, to show what the prospects are for continued development and growth. Uh, I, we have highlighted, I did in particular, the recent work of Robert Putnam and Richard Alba, two mm -hmm. separate social scientists, uh, both of whom demonstrated that over the course of the period since the end of the Civil War until today, uh, there was in fact, there were two things happening. One, there was a period of enormous social and cultural development that took place. And it's, it's a lie to say that it didn't take place. And th that's what Putnam demonstrated in his work called The Upswing. And then there was Alba's work, which shows it's a lie to say that we're turning into a majority of minorities. The reality is, as we describe it in the book, this is not Alba's term, a great process of absorption is taking place, which mirrors the historical processes of immigrant assimilation in the United States. So, so that the real picture of America is an emerging a newly emerging mainstream 
and not the development of a permanent division. And that's what this book does in each of these essays contributes in some way to understanding that despite the fact that there is diversity of opinion among the essays, which is a thing important for us because I'm firmly convinced that whoever sees the whole story cannot fail to see the truth. And the underlying truth is that from the end of slavery forward, as Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells pointed out, the story of the accomplishment of the freed slaves is simply an extraordinary human achievement, but more importantly, it is specifically an achievement that has been sponsored and fostered by the American political heritage. Okay. Um, can we talk a little about uh, <laughs> this uh, quote-unquote anti-racism uh, campaign? Uh, yes. Uh, the cause of anti-racism, the, the the that that Ibram X. Kendi idea of anti-racism. Um, you say in the book that uh, the this anti-racism campaign uh, poses a demand for Black Americans to to disengage from America, to uh, yes. to stamp out Black patriotism. Uh, but why is Black patriotism uh, the only fit response to this? Uh, idea of anti-racism and to um, overcoming what problems remain uh, for Black yes. America, and then also on that on that patriotism, Black patriotism uh, topic. Why is the the future strength of America, of Black America, the best hope for uh, for America itself as a country that seems to have sort of lost faith in itself in a way? Yeah, I, I think that that's just the critical point. And as you know, Glenn Lowry joins me in making that argument mm. in the pages of the book. Uh, and what the argument means stripped down to its essentials is, is, is this, that opinion polls have shown us over and over again that there is a low level of uh, identification with the country as country among American blacks. Why is that? Because two things have happened. One, we've seen... First, the long-term rhetoric of you don't belong and you can't do it and you are dependent victims. Uh, it achieved its consummation, of course, in 1965 when Lyndon Johnson declared that you, uh, equal opportunity is not enough, which is his way of saying not only to the country at large that it doesn't work, but saying to black people in particular that you can't do it. You're not capable of it. So, so that this became entrenched over a long period of time and developed a sense of dependent victimhood, which means the future of the country seemed to depend on some savior coming to the rescue. Well, there are no saviors out there. That's the fundamental reality. And it's also true that this loss of a sense of agency, which has been spread throughout black communities over the United States, is itself false and pernicious. It's a poison inserted into the veins of the culture. So, so what we have been illustrating is that the response to that, the specific cure for that, is to raise again confidence in self-government, a sense of agency, a sense of self-respect, a sense of dignity. And you get that, of course, by 
embracing the prospect of self-government that is represented in the American political heritage. That's why the patriotism is important. You cannot accomplish the degree of self-respect, dignity, and liberation independently of embracing the promise of America. So it takes black patriotism first to lift black communities out of this depressed state of dependent victimhood, and secondly, but more importantly, first in terms of importance, even though second in the order of development, is that the country itself will be destroyed if we don't get over this poisonous division. And black patriotism is the key to overcoming that. It is the key to saying no to the dividers and yes to the United States. Gotcha. Uh, you write in the book that uh, the current state of black America is a state, uh, you say, of, of suspension between absorption and administrative cantonment. Um, yes. Now, you use the word, uh, you explain in the book that you, you use the word absorption. Uh, you find that word preferable, a preferable term, in your opinion, to words like uh, integration or uh, assimilation. Um, but what exactly do you mean uh, by uh, black America's caught in this state of suspension between uh, absorption and administrative cantonment? Well, let me say first, just to make clear what I mean by absorption, I think it's easy for people to sure. understand. If they think about integration and assimilation, they're thinking about changes that take place within individuals. Uh, is an individual integrated? Is an individual assimilated? Have they taken on certain characteristics? I, I think that's a misplaced emphasis. It's not what's happening to the individuals. It's what's happening to the larger culture. So I use absorption because it's like a great chemistry experiment. And we know what it's like to produce a solution, right? We bring a solvent and a solute together. Mm -hmm. And we mix the solvent and the solute to get the solution. And the solution doesn't reflect purely the one or the other. In fact, the distinctive characteristics of the solvent and the solute are absorbed into the solution. So I use that image because it's no longer what's happening to the individuals, but what's happening to the larger culture that's important. And when we look, at the United States today, what do we see happening? We see across all lines of background an extraordinary degree of mixing, marital and otherwise, so that the face of the very nation is changing before us while we lie to ourselves that it's all divided into black and non-black. But that's not the case. There's hardly a family that isn't touched by some element of black ancestry today in the United States. Mm -hmm. So we need to begin thinking about that way so we see the changing face of the country and realize that's who we are. And we therefore can no longer talk about us and them. That's why the language of absorption is used. So what is the state of suspension? The state of suspension is this. We can face that reality. That's the valley view, not the mountaintop view. That's seeing the things as they are, not according to an abstract ideal. Face that reality. Or we can continue to use the false picture of division to the point that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Gotcha. Okay. Um, is uh, is white racism, in your opinion, is that still an important impediment to to black progress? Uh, just for an example, um, I'm. <laughs> I'm like your prototypical uh, white guy with like, you know, like three black friends, you know, what I mean? uh, uh, you know but there are three very, very good friends. Uh, one in particular, like if you were 
if he were Catholic, he uh, he would have been the godfather of my child, but he's not Catholic, so he can't be. Anyway, uh, but so sometimes, not often, but you know, sometimes we'll we'll talk about this stuff because uh, we can have you know pretty open, honest conversations with each other since you know we're good friends. We've known each other for you know close to 20 years now. Uh, you know, when I asked him. I, you know, because I don't think I've ever asked him before. I was like, you know, uh, like on a scale of like one to ten, like um, how would you say, or like what what would you say like racism, you know, affects your life in any way? And he was like, well, doing that. This is just one person's anecdote. Uh, and he was like, probably. He said probably like like if I were to put it as a number like three. He said you know nothing major uh, you know it's ever really happened like no white person has ever called him a nigger to his face or anything like that or uh, but you know he has been followed by you know mall you know security guards in a in a in the mall in a store and stuff like that and his uh, his wife his now wife back when she was. Uh, younger was I guess uh, looking at a house with a realtor you know and had the had the police called on her uh, you know for, <laughs> for being at this house and like stuff like that but he said he hasn't really uh, you know it hasn't been it's been an annoyance but not really a major impediment um, but how would but in your opinion uh, you know, like I said, is white racism is that is it still an important impediment to impediment to black progress in your opinion? Hello. Introduce the racial basis for slavery in a pejorative manner in 1784 when he published notes on the state of Virginia, and that certainly poisoned the culture. And there were certainly great struggles over the question of whether this new society could incorporate Africans or not, which is a, a perfectly open question that one ought to be able to have raised in those early days. But, and therefore, there's always going to be racism that individuals will indeed express, or if not express, at least feel. Now, I've personally been victimized by racism in specific occasions, but very few. Certainly, growing up as a youth in the segregated South, and being strongly impressed with the sense of terror under which we live, that's a sense in which I was aware of racism and it affected my life, but not to the point of determining my life or shaping my life or giving direction to my life. It was not without effect that my mother always said to me, hold your head up, boy, because it meant you can face up to all kinds of circumstances with resolve and determination. And to see the circumstance as determining you rather than yourself determining the circumstances to start out losing in the first place. So, yes, there is racism, but there's no great big bugaboo called white racism, no racism with a capital R. There is today and always will be racism in human communities everywhere insofar as there's any degree of variety among them. And they will find reasons for hatred even when there is no variety among them. So let, let us just be very clear about this. I say the one thing you can count on for sure is that people who expect racism will always find it. I had a very, very close friend, a dear friend, uh, when I was in California as a college student. Who, uh, who married interracially and who traveled back and forth across the country, as I did also. And he always came back and recounted stories of racial encounters, racist encounters. Uh, 
And I traveled even more frequently than he did back and forth the country, and my family was also interracial. And I never had those experiences. And it finally occurred to me one day, well, the reason he has them is that he looks for them. And the reason I don't have them is I don't look for them. I don't expect them, I don't assume them, and I don't accept them. So some of this you have to understand represents a kind of reciprocating mechanism, speaking emotionally or psychologically. And to say white racism as if it were a great objective thing determining the shape of the universe, that's a mistake. To say whether well, people formulate responses to the world they live in, that they interpret along these lines or with these kinds of tropes, that's accurate. But then you must always ask whether their interpretations are indeed accurate or not, or whether they are projecting. So, so it's a very complicated story, mm -hmm. but to boil it all down, there is no racism with a capital R, neither systemic, nor structural, nor institutional, or anything else. There are only races. I'll give you one final example of this. When I was a very young child growing up in the South, I was an avid reader from a very early age, and my whole life has been characterized by, by reading and study. But uh, one day I presented myself to the public library in this small segregated town, and seeking entry to get something to read, to be informed by the librarian I couldn't come in there because colored people were not permitted. And I mentioned this in the book. Mm -hmm. As I as I obviously turn away despondent and depressed by that fact, ready to leave, she comes out and stops me and says, sit down here. And, and I sat down and she went in and she brought a book back and says, you can read it here. Now, what I'm saying is, that, yes, so we there see the expression of racism built into policy at the same time that we see the expression in a human heart that transcends the racism built into policy. That's the real picture of the complex world in which we live. Mm. Uh, uh, sort of on a, I don't know, just hypothetical, um, Jim Crow laws like that, uh, segregation laws, do you, uh, do you think if, I mean, obviously the, the reason to codify those laws is to make sure that they're, um, you know, uh, <laughs> is to stamp down on any potential uh, mixing of the races. Do you think, like, if those laws were never codified, set in stone in, in books, do you think um, that sort of uh, culture of Jim Crow would have died away quicker in the South if, you know, those things hadn't been on the books? Oh. Or, I mean, yes, do you think, do you think people in their, in their going about in their regular, their reg, their regular lives would have, you know, uh, been more accepting of a... Um, uh, of you know of uh, intercourse between the races if there wasn't uh, you know if there if it wasn't against the law basically yeah well, the the evidence is material and we see that in the very emergence of the Jim Crow laws themselves you mm -hmm. must remember they were a reaction they were a response they were not a spontaneous proactive development they were a response what were they a response to their response to the fact that people were ignoring the cultural desire some had to separate on train cars or street cars all forms of mixing. If they didn't impose it by law, it wasn't going to happen. Mm. That's why it was imposed by law. So that in Plessy versus Ferguson, when the court says these things are matters of custom, well, if it were truly a matter of custom, they would never have needed to impose it by law. Right, right, yeah. So, so we know what was happening at the time, and we have all the historical evidence that demonstrates it, that Jim Crow was an attempt to put the genie back in the bottle. 
Gotcha. That's what Jim Crow was. So the evidence is the genie had escaped once slavery was ended and there was nothing but progress ahead. I like to remind people that when the riots and the massacres in places like Charleston and Atlanta and Tulsa and elsewhere were taking place, it wasn't poor, impotent black folk who were being murdered. It was, as in the case of Tulsa, the new black Wall Street, people who were succeeding and moving into the mainstream and the middle class. The idea was to try to stop that on the part of the haters. And so Jim Crow was the expression of the desire to stop what was the natural development of American political and cultural principles. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, we're oh, getting close to the I, end already. Um, yeah, I'm so. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, so uh, a couple more questions. One uh, I was really curious about. I mean, there, I had a lot of it I wanted to ask you, but, you know, we had our, our technical difficulties. So. Um, but uh, you write in uh, on the in chapter four your uh, your chapter on on competing visions. Mm-hmm. Um, you say that the uh, uh, the civil rights movement may have inadvertently spawned the most serious obstacle to the progress of American blacks in our time. What what do you mean by that? What what uh, what did the civil rights <laughs> movement? What what was the well, let uh, me reduce it yeah. to a principle, uh, uh, an example, a particular example. I think Martin Luther King stepped on his own lines. He started out, of course, by invoking the promissory note of the founding. And that's what the famous I Have a Dream speech was all about, right? We have derived from the American founding a promise of a certain kind of life, and we've come now to cash that check. And therefore, he was appealing to the emergence of a patriotic commitment and an attempt to fulfill what were the originating principles of this nation. But once he started, particularly when he started the mission in Chicago and turned it more into an anti-poverty campaign than to a civil rights campaign, he also began to speak in a way that suggested there wasn't anything black folk could do for themselves, that first it was necessary for the non-black community to change itself and therefore to uplift the black community. And that was the formulation. That was the mistake. That was a great error. Because that said black people cannot do it on their own. That joined Lyndon Johnson and his equal opportunity is not enough. And they have been influenced by Lyndon Johnson, frankly. And it denies the reality, which I point out in the book. If we go back when I went through uh, the South in the civil rights tour a few years ago, I led teachers to Selma and we went to Big Bethel AME Church. There were the people who were going to march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge gathered for their strategy session. And I'm in the church sanctuary giving a lecture to this teachers about the historical events. And I stop in the middle of the lecture and I look up and I say, wait a minute. Look up. What do you see here? And, and they looked and they were startled because it came in the middle of a lecture and had nothing to do with the lecture. And I said, who do you think built this? And eventually they said, well, the people who worship you. I said, well, of course. Well, this church is just one of the most magnificent architectures. It's simply beautiful. It was built in the first decade of the 20th century. Those black people who built that were not whimpering, simpering, impotent people. They were intelligent, resourceful, creative, committed people. Even though lynching was taking place everywhere, even though Jim Crow had sprung into existence, even though there was enforced deprivation, sharecropping, you name it. These people were not helpless. They were capable of doing things 
for themselves and by themselves. And so the mistake the civil rights movement made was to cultivate the notion that black people were not capable of doing things for themselves and by themselves. Okay. Now, uh, uh, do you have any recommendations for promoting opportunity for promoting upward mobility uh, for black Americans? Are there policy recommendations? Is there anything individuals themselves can do or should uh, or should should we do like Frederick Douglass recommended and and basically (laughs) leave the black man alone? Uh, well, yeah. I, I think I think that the greater culture should follow uh, Washington and uh, I mean Douglas and Booker T. Washington and leave him alone, to be sure. Uh, but I think in black communities, you need to also have some useful admonition and advice. And I would say it starts by looking at the examples. Look at Ian Rowe in this book, who talks mm-hmm. about what he's doing. His entrepreneurial spirit is nevertheless civic-centered, civic-focused. Choice in education is a hugely important part of this picture. And getting people to embrace that and to therefore dismantle the external authorities that seek to impose upon them some kind of lockstep form of orientation and development, that's the beginning of the policy change. Just dismissing, frankly, government's authority to rule our lives is a policy change. And there will be many others besides, and some of which are talked about in, these, in this book. But, but the main thing is to get, be open to the prospect of looking for new ways of doing things. That's the single most important change that is necessary. We need to get out of the comfort zone of waiting for the hand of government to come to the rescue. As I say, the civil rights movement taught people to look for a handout. The time now has come for the country to learn to look for a helping hand from black citizens. Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, before we go, last question. Uh, something I ask everybody that comes on the podcast. Uh, that's a. Uh, what would you like the audience to get out of this book? What's a, What's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from reading it? The most important thing I want a reader to gain from reading this book all the way through is a sense that the reader and the country are capable of doing better. All right. Great. Well. Uh, uh, before we go, anything else uh, you want to plug? Uh, any other appearances? Any 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 progress? I mean, uh, projects? Anything like that you want to raise awareness for? Not at this time. We'll keep everything in reserve for the moment. <laughs> All right, great. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Dr. Allen, uh, thank you very very much for uh, coming on the podcast and discussing uh, this book with me, uh, "The State of Black America: uh, Progress, very- Pitfalls, and the Promise of the Republic." Uh, highly recommended. Uh, for everybody out there, please uh, go out and get a copy of it. You're, uh, uh, you won't be uh, disappointed with what you say. But yes, yeah, so Dr. Allen, thank you very much for uh, coming thank on the Thank you very show. much. It's been uh, a pleasure. Uh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please uh, leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you uh, have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland, uh, heartland.org. Excuse me. And then we do have a uh, Twitter account for the uh, podcast. You can reach out to us there if you have any uh, questions or information. You know, feel free to give us a follow or send us a DM or what have you. Uh, our Twitter account handle, uh, Twitter handle for the podcast is at illbooks at i l l books. So yeah, make sure you reach out to us there too. And uh, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom.
拜拜。
Take care of us. I don't want nobody. Give me nothing. 